0: Oh, i got to get ready for the second drink.
1: Yeah, me, me
0: too. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't laugh at me, damn it. Greetings
1: friends, this is Why Whiskey, a history podcast with a whiskey problem. Or is it a whiskey podcast with a history problem? We'll let you decide. Head on up to the bar, grab a stool and a drink, and let's talk. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Bar of Questionable Life Choices. This is Why Whiskey, and I am your host, Ian. Tonight, we are kicking off a series of shows that will be centered around some of America's grandest and most outlandish legends. We will pick apart fact from fiction, legend from reality, and fabrication from what actually may have happened. To kick off this series, I picked a story that reads like a revolutionary war novel, A woman drawn to war, not by a duty or a desire to fight, but a desire to stay close to her husband. Now, this woman is put into a situation where she's forced to defend herself and others on the very same battlefield as her husband. Uh, This woman mans a cannon and single handedly kills everybody, or something like that. I tend to embellish a little bit from time to time. However, this legend unlike some others that we'll get into here later down the series, has great potential of being true rather than just a tall tale. So tonight, please join me as we start our legend series by talking about Molly Pitcher. So to tell these grand stories, I need storytellers. And for this particular story, one of the best storytellers I know in the business right now who is a fellow history nerd of mine goes without saying she's been on the show before y'all know her very well i have got none other than alicia from uh, civics and coffee my friend how are you i'm doing
0: great i'm happy to be back
1: it is so good to see you
0: good to see you too and i and i'm i'm, I'm ready with my whiskey in hand
1: oh i i am so excited for that i'm so excited for that what you been up to? I, you know, it's been like a year or something. I don't know.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, not too much. I started graduate school. So you're catching me on the tail end of semester one of, of a two-year program. So hoping to get the master's degree here in about 18 months. So been a little busy.
1: Wonderful. And I don't see a single gray hair on your head yet. So you must be doing phenomenally.
0: (laughs) I think they're just well hidden. (laughs)
1: Oh, that's wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. All right, folks. Well, buckle in. We've got a great show lined up for you this evening. We're going to talk about some fun stuff, drink some wonderful whiskeys and have a grand old time. So we will be right back just after this. So tonight, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to kick off, uh, with this uh, tale of of American heroism with some good old-fashioned rye whiskeys. We're going to be sipping rye whiskeys tonight. Now, the last time Alicia was on, we, uh, we I think we did scotches. I don't remember. Which, which were very delicate and very nice and very wonderful. Now we're going to get a little punchy this evening because we're talking about some, some, uh, some hard-hitting women. So, starting off tonight, and not only are we going to talk about the whiskeys tonight, but we're also going to talk about, uh, I've chosen brands that have... Uh, women in some of the, the highlighting roles. And so we're gonna be tasting through some whiskeys um, that have a very strong influence by uh, women distillers and blenders and just incredible stuff. So uh, really excited about this. The first one we're starting with is Woodford Reserve Rye. So the mash bill is uh, 53% rye, 33% corn, and 14% malted barley, and it's guessed to be around four years old. Um, the one good thing about Woodford when you pick them up off the shelf is their ABV, their proof is all the same. It's 45.2 ABV, which is 904 proof all the same so not a not a heavy heavy hitter a little bit more than the scotch was but we'll be okay and also as a reminder if you're drinking along with us at home please drink responsibly make sure you've got a a plan to get home if you're not listening to this at home please don't drink and drive Uh, and Alyssa you do not have to drink all of the sample if you want they were heavy samples you just sip as you as you please okay Um, so cool thing about Woodford uh, a lady by the name of Elizabeth McCall is the current assistant master distiller She's been with brown informants since 2009 where she started in their research and develop department as a sensory expert which is kind of cool so we're looking and we're tasting and we're feeling the whiskey um, to make sure that it meets all the quality standards there's so much that goes into making whiskey that people just it's it's so cool i just i love it it's so much fun um so she has now uh taken her talents uh and has gone under uh the wing of chris morris who is the master distiller and she is learning uh all of the things and she's been doing this for about three years so this will definitely have some of her influence in there and without further ado shall we uh shall we partake cheers cheers my friend Ooh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is that like home for you it's it, it it really is it just it has this just wonderful like i describe it as round um when it hits you it's not it's not thin it's not watery it's not like super chewy um and it doesn't hurt like there's some whiskeys you drink in it the, like the first thing it's like Ew! it's like hey how are you doing but like this is just has that nice gentle flow and it very reminiscent of all woodford products they are they just flow so easily and then you've got the the rye you know with bourbons it tends to be a little bit sweeter up front but this kind of has a almost like a dry spicier feel to the start oh this is wonderful
0: yeah, I feel like I'm tasting like almost a uh, salted caramel, a little bit. Yeah, little salty, little sweet. Not, it's not super. Um, you know, it's not a, it's not a punch to the throat. <laughs> <laughs>
1: your, your face said differently.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's just because you know, you know, as I as I <laughs> discussed last time I was on, I am not by nature a whiskey drinker. I drink clear liquids, so um, you know, all of this is going to be an adventure. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Y'all want to stick around for segment three. This is going to get wild. All right. (laughs) Excellent. So tonight we're going to be talking about Molly Pitcher. Now, the cool thing about Molly Pitcher is that there has actually never been a Molly Pitcher. Oh. So uh, the name Molly is just a common name that has been thrown out there. And the pitcher was in reference to um, that person's role on the field where they would haul water, and they didn't haul water in pitchers, they hauled them in buckets, but that name, uh, there, there is no singular Molly Pitcher. It, it doesn't exist. Maybe that's a spoiler right up front, uh, but the people who have been known as Molly Pitcher, there's a, a couple of them. We're going to look at two. Um, there's like three or four that have potentially filled the roles, but these are the ones that have a little more substantiating evidence to say that they... May have actually been a little bit more than just the legend. So, with that, as I said before, Molly Pitcher was not an actual person; rather, the name given to multiple women throughout the Revolutionary War. The name uh, derived from these women's began on the battlefield as camp followers, and we'll talk about more uh, about camp followers a little bit later, right? And these folks were hauling water uh, up to the front lines to their troops. So, we're going to pause there, and we're going to think about revolutionary war tactics for just a second okay so and this this kind of helps kind of put things like into into perspective for these these ladies because we think of the battlefield now right it's big it's spaced out we have these awesome weapons that we can stand like hundreds of thousands of miles away from people and touch them right we don't have to be that that was not the case here yeah these folks were face to face they were often 20 meters apart from each other that's 60 feet that's less than a football field that's a that's less than half of a football field so so these conflicts were very close and they were very tight so the fact that there were people voluntarily walking into this mess of violence (laughs) to help bring sustenance and to keep the folks in the fight alone is heroic
0: yeah I, I would agree and I also that you know women by and large were not necessarily absent from the front lines and a lot of their their chores were more domestic in nature. I also think during this time period there was very different um rules of warfare, right? You had kind of you you had war from like 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. and then 4 p.m. came and the war clock went ding 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 <laughs> 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 to go to dinner. Um and so perhaps, you know, still a very dangerous situation, right? But um I, I do think it's a little it was a little bit of a different context in, in that regard, right? Because even which I'm sure we'll get to, but even like Martha Washington would go and visit George Washington out on the front lines, um, you know, admittedly during quote unquote breaks, but she's still there, she's still within quote unquote enemy fire. Um, and so it's a it's a fascinating decision that women went ahead and said, okay. And especially when you think of the gender roles of the day, right. Mm -hmm. You know, women were not seen as, um, you know, able to be in in a fight. And there was a lot of this women needed to be inside the home and not really seen out in, in the world. So um, yeah, very heroic and very much challenging gender norms in a sense. Right.
1: Absolutely. And when I, the gender rules at, at that time, and we're going to talk about how far, like where we've come, like how far we've gotten from that point. And it's, it's really fascinating. I don't want to get ahead of myself here, but the fact that these, these folks are just standing right there, just throwing lead at each other. And that there were people just moving about the space, um, is, is kind of crazy, um, but there's more. Right. So these legends. Right. Have these women. Not only are they hauling water, not only are they putting themselves in danger to to help keep the boys in the fight to to you know, do all these things. They fought themselves. So in the stories that we're looking at, their husbands go down. And I, I think about that in, in my significant other goes down. Mm -hmm. Am I still emotionally like, where does my brain go? My brain goes to that person. Like, Oh my God, I've got to get them out of here. I got to get them help. I got to get them safe. That's where my, my brain goes. Right. In both of the stories that we're going to look at tonight, they didn't do that. They put that aside and they said, Nope, we got a job to do. They grab uh, a ramming rod or shot or whatever, and they start loading cannons, <laughs> right, and and start shooting back. They just grab the gun and start to go, uh, and which that's where the story kind of gets a little crazy for me. Mm-hmm. So that's where I want to like dig into and see what we can find and and see if this oh is this just a legend? Is this just a cool thing that some private wrote about in a journal, you know, back during the Revolutionary War, or is there is there any uh, any weight to this? So let's look at it. Right, we're going to start with a lady by the name of Mary Hayes McCauley. Now, during the the conflict, she would have been known as Mary Hayes. She married. Uh, she became Mary Hayes McCauley after the Revolutionary War. After her husband passed, now she was born to immigrant parents from Germany. Uh, somewhere around mid October of 1754, she married John William Hayes. He was a barber. Uh, in 1769, and he joined the 4th Pennsylvania Artillery in 1776. Here's where we get some facts to the story. Uh, She also enlisted at that time, uh, shortly after her husband, in June of 1778. and She signed up for two years. So, no combat roles and no significant like military roles, but she was she did enlist. This was with Captain Francis Proctor's Company of the Pennsylvania Artillery, uh, which was the same as her husband. We know through journals that the guys loved her. <laughs> um, they, she was one of the dudes because she would sit with them, she would drink with them, she would smoke with them, she would cuss with them so that was like those the, those are the things that the common themes for uh, for Mary Hayes in uh, in when she's noted in these journals throughout history is like like yeah no she she had a mouth on her she was feisty and she was fussy <laughs> <laughs> she was also pregnant by the way
0: that i did not find in my research so wow knowledge drop holy moly now, did she give birth on the battlefield? Because then, then she's just boss status, and we just we can we could just lock it up right now.
1: I, yeah. I, well, I mean, the show would be over, and we would just sit here for an hour and a half and drink. So, I mean, if that was the case, <laughs> I could not find anywhere uh, of you know where she had the child, how she had the child, anything like that. Um, but there, there was enough uh, annotations to say that she was carrying a child at the time. So, uh, very interesting stuff. To- in an era where and and maybe I'm wrong, maybe I haven't done enough homework, but where I find it believable, before we look at like actual evidence of of a bunch of stuff that we're gonna get into, um here we have a lady who joins the same unit as her husband, says, No, I'm I'm not going anywhere, we're doing this together, here we go.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What makes that believable to me um, is the fact that it's it's noted that you know she was she was uh, drinking cussing and fussing feisty you know uh, she was out there with with the boys hanging having been in that environment mm, yes like that's a thing so 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 right away like I, I hear those I read those stories and I'm like eh, this this is probably true like <laughs> so I I. I right away I've got a I've got to guard my bias because I, I read that and I'm like oh yeah yeah no she they they caught it she's she's definitely there and she definitely did this, um, but that was one of the interesting things that her behavior was noted and how atypical that was because in the you know with the gender norms at the times you know seen not heard you tend to the home you tend to the children you you do that type of thing you you know I, there's no voting there's no you know there there are characters in history that are very much not that history doesn't remember well-behaved women too well. Um, (laughs) it's, it's the other ones that get remembered, but, uh, so, so right away I, we have a character who is already pushing away from what a, a typical wife or mother or type figure of that time is, is doing. So, I'm going to throw it to you for a second.
0: Yeah. Um, I Well, in looking at that, the one thing that struck me was the fact that she was allowed to sign up, which mm-hmm. led me to infer, and I'm inferring because my, my research was not uh, nearly as deep as yours, Mr. By the way, she was pregnant. Um, <laughs> but my thought process is knowing what I know about the American Revolution and the troops and how it was really very much a ragtag army, right? It wasn't there wasn't an established militia. There wasn't really uh, a lot of military training out there. They still needed things to be done that were more domestic in nature. And I don't wonder if, while yes, very surprising that she was, you know, kind of serving under a captain, if perhaps the, re- the reason it's not so surprising is because they still needed somebody to do the wash. They still needed somebody to probably prepare the food and not having a lot of, manpower to go around did they not just say okay you know what yeah let's go ahead let's let her in here we're not going to let her have any kind of fighting experience because of course she's a lady and she has to be feminine so we'll give her her feminine chores of you know laundry and food preparation and maybe caring for the sick um i think that's the one thing that's kind of struck struck me about her allowance of of enlistment
1: Mm -hmm. absolutely and we're going to, we'll talk about camp followers uh, a little bit more because there was, there was a place that, you know, but again, it doesn't talk about enlistment. Like we know that they were there. We know that they were employed. We know that some weren't employed. They just came to help because that's where their husbands were going, but I'm getting ahead of myself here. So we're going to talk about all that. Um, but this, this, she appears this specific one, she appears to not be one of those. Like she, she signed up. She's like, no, I'm, I'm here now knowing she's not going to fight, but but she wanted to be a part of of the unit. She wanted to be a part of an official role of the action, and and so that, along with you know uh, her behavior, how it was annotated, says, okay, this this to me is is a believable story. Where we get some quantification of this is later on. So uh, at the Battle of Monmouth. Um, Husband goes down. Now we're not sure if if he goes down from heat or injury. We know that a few years later he passes away due to injury sustained, but we don't know if this was that case. Um, there's nothing that says he died here, or or we don't we don't know. But we know that he goes down. He was manning the cannon. Allegedly, now she takes his place and she starts loading and and going to town and getting after it. An interesting story with mary is there's a, a, a journal entry a private said uh she as she was loading the cannon a, a cannonball came um like went right between her legs and ripped off her petticoat uh and that it was gone and and in his, yeah <laughs> for shame but like even you keep reading the journal he says can you imagine if it was a little higher if taking her clean out or something like that It'd, so there's there's a note that you know she wasn't injured but there was there was, uh, you know, she was she was in the fight enough to to receive, you know, to get have a lucky break anyway. But that's that's all there is really. Now Hayes' story comes out more so after she dies. So after she dies is where her story comes out. But before she dies, she is awarded a pension from the state of Pennsylvania, and the pension does state for heroism and service. So. Um, you got to kind of wonder what they looked at to get to that point.
0: And the research that I saw, it, she had actually applied for a widow's pension in 1822 and not, not necessarily as a service pension. So I thought that that was interesting that when she was, in fact, awarded that pension, it was for, quote unquote, services rendered during the war. Um and, you know, just thinking about her taking over the the cannon, you know, she was there on site. It sounds like from what I've been able to, to glean from my research, the reason why she was able to kind of jump into the action, so to speak, was that she was there kind of trying to make sure everybody stayed hydrated and, and giving them the water. And it was kind of happenstance, luck, quote unquote, luck. I don't know if anybody finds themselves lucky on the front lines, but uh, luck that she was there and then could kind of jump in into into the action.
1: Yeah, and she had to have been there long enough and been close enough to know how to do this. Like that's and that's one of the big like you don't just walk up to a cannon and oh okay this is how we like you, you know there's a little bit more to it than that you know there's charges and fuses yeah yeah you just throw the ball and you hit this thing with some fire it goes boom people die it's great like we it's it. yeah you know so there there had to be some knowledge somewhere that she either gleaned or was taught or or told or something. Um, something that came about to where she was given that knowledge, but the the pension is is one of when it comes to Margaret Hayes, that's one of the the big things that people use um, as as a quantifier as as proof that she did this, and because of it, sta- it states that you know um, heroism and service. But there really is not a whole lot um, of. Uh, you know, we can we can see the enlistment record. But but as far as like her actual actions on the battlefield and those kinds of things, and she's not mentioned anywhere. But again, she wouldn't have been right unless, you know, it's caught in the journals and the diaries and, and the folks of, of other people there. Um. So so when it comes to Mary, I, I personally, I. I tend to believe it's true just by the accounts of of uh, her actions and, and her like they, they annotated her behavior. So I'm going to say that this one to me and and the pension as well is probable.
0: Yeah, no, I, I think I would agree with you. I mean, you have two, you know, historical pieces of evidence, right? You have contemporary journals taken at the time kind of documenting her behavior or, or commenting on her behavior so why would they feel the need to do that just to make it up right and then you have the pension which the military historically is not very good at you know just giving over money right you do have to prove you have to prove that you did something worth getting money right um so i think those are two qualifiable pieces of evidence that, that lend this story to more likely being true than not being true. So enlistment records, contemporary accounts of her behavior and a pension. I mean, that's three right there. We got three pieces of evidence. I think it's fine to say it's likely true.
1: All right. So we're going to say that Mary Hayes was likely a Molly pitcher, but she was not the only Molly pitcher. There's another one that we're going to talk about right after the break. Her name is Margaret Corbin. Her story is equally as fascinating, but she's also made the news here in a f- recent years as well. And we're going to get into that too. So uh, hang around. We've got some more coming, and we'll be right back after this. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. We are talking about uh, Molly Pitcher, the legend of Molly Pitcher. Who was she? Was she actually a person? Um, and uh, joining me is Alicia from Civics and Coffee. We are we are sipping on some rye whiskeys this evening. So we're going to go in for number two, which is I have not had this yet. So this is going to be a new one for the two of us.
0: Okay. And for all the listeners out there, I did start uh, this podcast with a jacket on, and I've only had one glass, and – I am taking off the jacket. So it's going to be a real party. It's going to be a party before the end of it. So come back for
1: section three. We'll see where this goes. (laughs) So uh, whiskey number two is Catoctin Creek Roundstone Distillers Edition. This is a 100% rye whiskey. It comes in at 46 ABV, which is 92 proof. There is no age statement on this. Well, that's all rye. That is all rye, right.
0: <clears throat> smoky.
1: That is very I yeah.
0: I mean, I don't know if my palate's developed enough as a whiskey drinker, but very smoky. <laughs> uh,
1: it's a it's a drier whiskey, um, so it kind of like it it hits your your palate and um, the same way like a wine does. Yeah, this is warm. This is warm for a ninety two.
0: Mm. I mean, definitely, I felt it in the back of my throat before I felt it on my tongue. It was just kind of like hit the tonsils.
1: So I'm getting a lot of like, like raw grain almost. So I, I'm, I'm thinking this is kind of young. Mm. I'm guessing within, I'm probably guessing within two, three years.
0: It feels not like maybe I don't want to say bitter, but like pungent maybe. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. Bitter, bitter is also a good one too. Cause it's just how it sits on the tongue. Like there's that, that there's a heavy wood finish at the end of it, which that usually comes from older whiskeys, but that grain, that the real heavy grain flavor up front. I'm not sure I'm a fan of this. I I, <laughs> we'll keep going. I'll let you know later. Um, okay. but, but, uh, the person we want to highlight from Catoctin Creek, uh, is Becky Harris. Becky Harris is the co-owner and chief distiller. Uh, she started the company with her husband back in 2009. His name is Scott. Um, she has said this uh, in an interview. She said, quote, When we taste through barrels to decide which expression they should be released as, I always include men and women as tasters since I want our Virginia rise to appeal to all customers. End quote. Now, what's cool about that is, and, and that's that's an awesome thing. Um, Physiolize
0: the whiskey is kicking in.
1: Like I said, I, it's been a while I'm warming back up. Here we go. Uh, so physiology plays a part when it comes to whiskey, we taste differently. So like, I'm sure the whiskey that you're tasting, I mean, it's the same stuff, but, but just how we're built between like men and women, it's just, it's just different. So what's cool is when you get these companies that, um, bring in both and they have both like, tasting and, and running, you'll see it now. Um, a lot of companies, their single barrel programs, um, they're, they're putting women in there to do that because they can, how they pull taste is just, it. it's phenomenal. Um, they taste things differently so they can, they've got a, a broader spectrum. Um, and, uh, the master distillers, the, the women master distillers come out. Um, I think of, uh, Molly Toop in, uh, she, she runs, uh, Freeland spirits out in Oregon. Um, her whiskeys are unbelievable, absolutely unbelievable. Um, Lisa Wicker's is another one in New York. She's, they, both of them just make some phenomenal, some phenomenal whiskey. So, um, so I'm excited that, uh, to see that she, you know, co-owner, chief distiller. She also, she brings in, um, both not just, you know, men but also women to to kind of like taste across to find the best stuff and uh that really helps i think bring a, a diverse product and get it out there maybe not this particular one but, but <laughs> they've, they've got other stuff which i'll have to give a try but this, yeah this is the first time i've had this
0: yeah Ooh, it's, it's a little of, rough
1: yeah take your time take your time
0: oh mama didn't raise no fool <clears throat> i got this
1: <laughs> that's what i'm talking about.
0: I mean, I'm chasing it with water, so I'm really not that much of a badass, but, you know, Uh, it's okay.
1: Well, I'm with you. (laughs) That is a hot rye. All right. So now uh, we're going to talk about uh, another uh, lady who is also thought to be Molly Pitcher. So the next most likely contender for uh, the actual Molly Pitcher was a lady by the name of Margaret Corbin. Now, she was born Margaret Cochran in 1751 in western Pennsylvania. She had a rough go as a kid. So she was living in the middle of the French and Indian War battlegrounds. So as this conflict got worse, her folks sent her off to live with her uncle. She was about four at the time. Uh, Her and her brother were moved out out of that area. Shortly after that, uh, her father was killed and her mother was taken, uh, never to be seen uh, or heard from again. So at a very young age, she loses her folks. She's now living with her uncle. So, which she does until she's 21, then she marries a fellow by the name of John Corbin. Four years later, John joins the revolution, and Margaret doesn't think there's a way for her to stay home and support herself. So, she becomes a camp follower. So, she packs up the stuff, and she says, all right, cool, I'm going too." Which I didn't know that, like, that's a thing. That was a thing. They were allowed to do that, which is kind of cool. So, she's, uh, she's there. Later that year, John is sent to Fort Washington. Let's talk about Fort Washington for just a sec. So Fort Washington was the last battle of Manhattan. So right at the beginning of the war, uh, the Brits come in, they take Long Island, they move into Brooklyn, they're working their way. Fort Washington, it was right after the Battle of White Plains, this is it. They're outnumbered. Um, the leadership is a little cocky because they've already repulsed a couple of surges. So they're feeling kind of arrogant and they're feeling like they're a little unbeatable uh, which was not to be the case. Um, so big fight, huge battle. The surrender of the fort would be, you know, this is all happening mid November of 1776. This would be it. Like now Washington would be knocked back on his heels. Actually, Washington wasn't even able to get to this fight. He was stuck on the other side of the Hudson couldn't get there. Um, so it, was, it for Washington was a bit of a mess. They did fight brilliantly, against a lot of folks, um, but eventually they lost it. But this is where Margaret Corbin makes a name for herself. As the Haitians were attacking John, her husband, uh, he's manning a cannon, uh, Margaret's bringing up water, she's doing the, the campfire thing, she's caring for the wounded. The battle continues, it gets worse. John and his cannon crew are killed. Then and, and there is, we know that that happened. Like we we weren't sure about Mary's husband, but we know that, uh, John Corbin is killed in that. Um, so Margaret, uh, another feisty woman known for her swearing and drinking amongst the soldiers. (laughs) Um, she, she drops the bucket. She grabs a a battering or a a charging rod and she gets to killing folks. She gets to killing a lot of folks. (laughs) <laughs> um, to the point where they had to redirect a charge. The Brits had to redirect a charge to take out her cannon because she was making it happen and she was getting, she was getting going. Um, she was causing significant damage. So, so as, and as she's going, they break off, they go after that cannon position specifically. Uh, she is shot three times and then she's hit with grape shot. A grape shot is ugly. It is just chunks of metal and bullets and fragments of gunk that is just shoved inside of a cannon and blown out. And it's, uh, think about the largest shotgun you could think of. Um,
0: that's where my, my mind went. I was like, is it like a shotgun where it just, it hits and then it explodes on impact.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's a mess. It's an absolute mess. And so she's hit with that. Um, she's hit with three, three rounds and then a bunch of grape shot. She uh, takes a severe wound to her left arm. It's just hanging there. It's almost gone entirely. Yep.
0: Ooh. Super bad.
1: She doesn't die. She's taken captive. The Brits take her captive, right? Eventually, they they call it paroling her. They parole her, and they hand her back over to, you know, George's and folks. Main- yep. Yeah. And, <laughs> and then they take her up to the rehab treatment facility up in West Point. Yeah. So... Interesting connection here uh, with West Point that keeps this the story keeps going for a long time. So <laughs> she's up there. She is inconsolable. Um, her captain, her rehab officer, is concerned for her well being, not her well being uh, like physically, her well being mentally and emotionally, um, and not necessarily her, but anybody that comes around her because she is just mean and she's angry but can we blame her
0: i mean no she lost she so she was on the field when her husband got shot down
1: right okay
0: because i i my my research with her was uh fairly limited so i i knew that she was able to man a, a cannon at the battle of fort washington but i wasn't sure about the the circumstances so yeah no i would be a bitter betty too if i had to watch my husband get gunned down then i'm getting shot at now the arm. Did she lose the arm? I'm imagining she did because it's not like medicine was very adept back then.
1: (laughs) So she didn't lose the arm, um, but the arm was rendered useless. So it's, it's now just hanging by her side. So, um, it may as well have been, uh, she couldn't really feed herself. She couldn't really dress herself. She was going to require assistance for the rest of her life. She is, however, so because of those injuries, because of her actions, she is the very first woman to be awarded a lifetime pension from Congress. Now she gets half of what a man would get, right? Um, which is kind of yeah, it's kind of bullshit. Because um, of
0: course she did. Because of course she did.
1: <laughs> right? She's she's laying up in bed next to the same dudes who fought the same battle um, and probably did not fight as hard. I mean the fact that they annotated that they literally had to divert attacking forces to go specifically to shut her down. You know what I mean? Like that's the bad guys have an account of her. Right. So, so that's where I get, I get a little pissy about this one because (laughs) the bad guys wrote down, like this chick was hurting us. So we had to go, we had to pull a bunch of dudes off the line just to go deal with this one, this one lady who was knocking it down with the cannon. Um, uh, so she gets half uh, because that's kind of what they do. Now they do give her an additional stipend for clothing, which is kind of nice. And they also give her a rum allowance. Because um,
0: everybody needs a rum allowance. Uh, if I lost the feeling and use of my arms, I would need a lot of rum to get through the day.
1: A lot of rum. <laughs> and, and maybe that made her a little bit, uh, you know, uh, a little bit more tolerable. It's like, yeah, hey, you know, great fighting. Good job. Thanks for your service. Sorry about your husband. Here's some booze and some clothes. And let's hope
0: she's not an angry drunk.
1: For real. For real. Um, So her pension reads, uh, resolved, that Margaret Corbin, who was wounded and disabled in the attack of Fort Washington, whilst she heroically filled the post of her husband, who was killed by her side, uh, serving a piece of artillery uh, she do receive during her natural life or the continuance of said disability, one half of the monthly pay drawn by a soldier in the services of these states and that she now uh, to is now is to receive the public stores one complete suit of clothes or the value thereof in money they wrote really weird back then it's really hard to read yeah um, so that can be found that uh, actual stuff can be found uh, if you look at the show notes there's a link there you can click and read the the actual like, written out, um, thing, which is kind of cool to see. I like seeing that stuff. So she's, uh, she's given the, the salary or half a salary, which a uh, monthly salary for a soldier at that time was $600 or nope, it was $6 and 66 cents. Um, a little weird there. So she gets half of that right a month. So we're talking about, uh, 333.
0: I mean, big spender, yeah. big spender. Don't, don't spend it all in one place.
1: Yeah. yeah. So she's given a pension, uh, and she goes on, she stays in the uh, the West Point area and kind of services um, other folks. She helps other folks uh, along the way and then is uh, buried uh, in the woods just outside of West Point. But this is not where her story ends.
0: Oh, okay, do tell more.
1: Okay, so 1926.
0: Oh, that's kind of a long time later, but okay, go.
1: Big jump, right? So the Daughters of the American Revolution, the New York chapter specifically, verify Margaret's record and they exhume her body they take her to West Point and they bury her with military honors, West Point.
0: Oh wow.
1: There is this beautiful stone in the cemetery at West Point, all to her. This is this is just Margaret Corbin's, you know, daughters of the revolution, huge gravesite. It's it's beautiful. It's wonderful. Um, so they're doing a lot of work to the cemetery uh, in was it uh, 2016? Okay a fellow with the backhoe gets a little loose and happens to bump a box that opens up and bones come out. So <laughs> there's a lot of bad juju that happens when you do that, right? You disturb somebody that should not be disturbed. There's probably some other shit that's going on. That's not a, that's not a good thing. oh. You know, they're like, Oh shit. So now we got to fix this. Um, I'm there at the time that this is all going down. This is, it, it's fascinating. So, <laughs> a bunch of folks come in they gather up all the bones and they take them because now they're going to do some study well i mean they're already exposed they're gonna have to rebury them anyway right so they go and they pull them off to the side and they're looking at them (laughs) and then the notice comes back to west point from these uh these forensic pathologists or whatever they are and they're like hey uh so this isn't margaret corbin this is actually a dude
0: (laughs) no get out Oh my god! <laughs> Awkward. So,
1: <laughs> so from nineteen twenty six to twenty sixteen, uh, people were rendering uh, annually uh, salute to Margaret Corbin, and she wasn't even there. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh
0: my god!
1: Yeah, yeah, that was uh, that was one of those. I, so, we're sitting in a meeting when this goes down. We're not joking, and somebody says something about the the a, the, the Margaret Corbin issue. Da, da da and and I lean over to the guy next to me. And I was like, I was like, what the hell happened? He's like, bro, this is a big deal. I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, yeah, it's not even her; it's a dude. And I was like, oh shit, what are they gonna like? Because there's like, there's a ceremony there every year. There's this like beautiful, huge head like headstone thing. I was like, oh shit, what are they gonna? do? So they put the dude right back where it was. <laughs> They're like, oh, well, he was Margaret Corbin for a long time, so we're just gonna let him keep being Margaret Corbin for now. Oh my gosh! So uh, the uh, the daughters are back out at. Um, uh, Uh, jennifer minus she actually works for the academy she's a she's a part of this organization uh her and her team have been uh going back out into the woods uh right near the water treatment plant so they're they're not real hopeful that her remains are still there but they uh they aren't giving up the look or the 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 search for her and to to hopefully bring her back one day but uh but yeah that was uh, an interesting thing so here in 2016 she's still uh she's still making headlines and uh, i mean
0: what a badass! Oh my God. That's so embarrassing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That the end of that story is the weirdest part, but uh, let's kind of rewind and go back to to her actions. So if there is a Molly pitcher, if, if there is, I I had a reasonable belief that, you know, it it was Margaret, um, excuse me, Mary Hayes. However, this story is, is going to be the one that I think wins overall. And I think this will be the one for me personally, because we have medical records, we have we we have accounts from the bad guys, like that's that's a big deal that they had to they had to divert. Um, so if there is a Molly pitcher, I believe it to be Margaret Corbin, and I believe that would so and and this presents enough evidence for me to say that this is not just a legend that this is this is a real thing. The actual details of the day obviously fuzzy. We lost that fight pretty bad. So, understandably, a lot of people that saw what happened probably didn't make it. But the evidence that was left, I would say this is this is this this happened. She's it.
0: And I go I think I go in a different direction. I think I go in the direction of, you know, in my research, they a lot of historians kind of point to this, quote unquote, Molly picture as being an amalgamation of various women who served during the revolution for various, uh, duties and so on and so forth. So I think I go into, go into all of these stories as something like, yeah, no, I can believe that Margaret Corbin existed. I can believe that, you know, sh- the evidence that you've per- presented, I-, I, I think, yeah, no, that's accurate. That sounds good to me. Um, and also our, our first heroine, I think there was enough evidence per presented to kind of make that story true. Uh, so I think, you know i think they're both true and i think they both helped contribute to this narrative of of strong women kind of sticking it to the man and still kind of being badasses on the battlefield so that's where i go i'm not i'm not willing to say one is molly pitcher over the other i think they're both equally amazing <laughs> and they both existed
1: <laughs> we are molly pitcher
0: <laughs> exactly
1: <laughs> i like that point of view and and i think that's I think, I think that's legit, um, you know, and I, I think that's what we're going to find, what I'm hoping to find with this this series of stories is that it's not, you know, um, somebody saw this here, somebody saw this here, somebody, and they tell those stories, and those stories move down the line, but as they move down the line, you know, they happened, you know, one was the Battle of Monmouth, one was the Battle of Fort Washington, you know, two very different places, two very different times, but as they move down the line, they kind of do this connection thing, and then they they fuzz out and they, they, you know, they separate again and they go down to, to two different people. So, so I, I would tend to believe that there are probably details of Mary's story that are Margaret's and Margaret's stories that are Mary's and
0: yeah, you know, probably,
1: you know, um, <laughs> it was Margaret that lost the petticoat and Mary was the badass that, you know, had people freaking going right at her, you know, who knows? Um, but I, there was definitely more annotated, Uh, primary sources for Margaret than there was, uh, other than, you know, there was the state pension. Um, And it was, you know, Mary's story kind of came about more after she passed, which isn't uncommon. You know, uh, you know, if she lived a private life off to herself and didn't, you know, really mess with it. And, you know, she, there's a lot of vets out there today that have done some really heroic shit that, are not going to talk about it and they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to be recognized. They don't want that stuff yet. And, and so looking at it on, on the veteran side of the house, I can, I can see where the story wouldn't have come out. People, you know, some historians have used that to say, that's why it's not true, you know, because it did, it came, it came out after the fact, well, there's a lot that don't, you know, there's a lot of stories that, that just they just don't.
0: You no, know, I, I was just going to say, well, I think also you have to, you have to take into account kind of the context, right? This was not a time that women were overly educated. They didn't uh, They didn't maintain a lot of contemporaneous records. So a lot of them didn't know how to read or write or know how to read or write very well. Um, and even if they did, they weren't considered important enough papers to be retained so it's entirely possible that both of these women kept a journal of their experiences out on, on the battlefield but it was never preserved the way madison's papers were or washington's you know journal of of his time on the on the continental army mm-hmm. and so i think it's not fair it's a dis- disservice to just say oh well because it came out it became popularized after she passed away well that just means it's not true um i think it's fair to say that the because these stories came out after she passed away that really it's more that it was an amalgamation of several women right they kept hearing it this in the taverns and out on the streets or with speaking with other former American revolution veterans where this picture of this woman came, came to be. And then that's kind of what, you know, propelled the story. I think, I think that's a fair way to look at it, but that's just my personal opinion.
1: (laughs) I would agree. I would agree with that. I'm, I'm bummed that we didn't do a better job. You know, um, now notably with, uh, Smithsonian, uh, they, they have said that they've got, you know, hundreds of thousands of pension paperwork that they haven't gone through that they, they haven't even touched yet. So, so there may be more stories and that's, you know, um, maybe, maybe these two, you know, these are the two that get talked about all the time. These are the two that are, are the most prominent that are the most, you know, loud and out there. Maybe, maybe Molly pitcher is somebody else, you know, and, and there is, like a full-on, you know, citation as to why and what happened. They just haven't got to it yet, um, which is cool because now we're we're like there's still stuff to figure out. And That's one of the things I love about history. There's still stuff. There's still stuff we don't know. We have it in our hands. We just haven't gone through it yet. You know. So if anybody feels like digging around, I guess you can just go and uh, hit up the Smithsonian. They'll let you poke around in their their digital files of you know pensions and stuff. So uh, if anybody wants to go hunt for Molly Pitcher outside of Mary or Margaret, um, have at it definitely and keep us informed. we would love to know that. So, all right. Uh, so we're going to take another quick break and when we come back. Uh, we've got our final whiskey and we're going to talk about some, uh, some camp followers. Sound good. Yeah. Let's all right. Do we'll it. Back in a sec. <laughs> Hey, friends, it's Ian. I want to ask for your support. Yes, I'm doing it. I'm that guy. So there's a couple different ways you can support the show. If you want to support the show for free, all I need you to do is hop over to iTunes or Podchaser.com and drop me a review. These reviews help kind of bolster my ability to get out there and have more people see the show and come and enjoy the whiskey and history and shenanigans that we enjoy on a biweekly basis. Now if you want to go a little bit deeper and you want to hand over a dollar or two that would be awesome. I have started a page on buymeacoffee.com. So the link is in the show notes www.buymeacoffee.com/ywhiskey. You can make a donation of however big or however little you want. That's just going to help me buy coffee to stay awake, to keep writing, researching and pushing this show out to you guys looking for more guests. And just being an all-around freaking, you know, general kind of fun whatever. To those who choose to donate on Buy Me A Coffee, you will be sent a private link. A private link that will take you to the video vault of Why Whiskey. Yes, we record the videos. So you get to see me and a guest, or just me sometimes, putting the show together. Unedited, nothing. You get to see the flubs. You get to see just exactly how much I say um... You ever notice that it's crazy anyway two ways to support drop me a review or go to www.buymeacoffee.com slash why whiskey and make a small donation to the show thanks cheers okay folks we are back uh we are sipping whiskey. We are talking about the legend of Molly Pitcher. We have spoken about uh, Mary Hayes and Margaret Corbin, two big contenders for who is Molly Pitcher, actually. Uh, There are more, but those are the two that we're choosing to focus on. Now, both of these ladies were thought to be what they refer to as camp followers. We're going to talk about camp followers next, but before we do that, we have one more whiskey to go through. All right, so you've done such a great job Right. We haven't lost any more clothing. So we're doing good there. We're, we're in good shape. All right. Um, this one's a little bit punchier. Okay. Okay. So it's, it's a little, it's a little spicy. So this has an undisclosed mash bill and an undisclosed age. So it comes from uh barrel spirits, which they take whiskeys from all over the place. And they blend them together so this is a blend of american and canadian and all different kinds of rye whiskeys it's called uh seagrass is the name of the the whiskey it's wonderful (laughs) and barrel has done such a great job of figuring out how to bring different whiskeys together to create such amazing flavor profiles Um, and seagrass is is right there in line with with some of the best ones in my opinion right um But in order to have, you know, to to be so successful with the blending, they've got to have an amazing blender, and they do. Their manager of blending operations is a woman by the name of Nick Christensen. Now, Nick started, uh, she was managing their single barrel program, which we talked about a little bit earlier in the show, and she was doing all of those operations for the company, uh, which that that requires a whole bunch of skill and talent all by itself because you got to take parts and pieces of what a customer gives you and then go through and taste a bunch of barrels with that information and say oh this one's probably it maybe this one and then you present those barrels to the customer customer picks like which one they like the best and they go from there so that's that job alone is is tough so with that knowledge that she gained from there uh she did such a great job they they pulled her out of the Rick House and they put her up in the front offices uh to start creating and putting together their product Uh, she did, uh, she was the assistant blender for a little while before taking over, um, the operations manager part of it in January of 22. And now here we are, we have this lovely stuff. So this comes in at like, this is like a 56 er this is, it's a little punchy. So just this,
0: this smells like it's going to give me a hangover, but that's okay.
1: (laughs) Just, just go slow. It's, it, it really is quite wonderful.
0: Okay. Yeah. That's, that's, mm. that's woo-hoo, people who can't see my face right now. <laughs> I'm making all sorts of faces. Oh, oh, oh. Ooh. that's like, as soon as it hits the tongue, it's, it's all in the face. Mm. <laughs> Holy moly. That was like a punch. It,
1: uh, it, it opens up everything.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, and uh, that was like a teeny tiny sip. I didn't even, I, I poured like a droplet, a thimble. As it were, and I didn't even make a dent. I don't think.
1: Yes. Yeah, so, so this comes in at uh uh 118. This this is a great whiskey for to play with, and when I say play with, I mean adding water, uh, throwing in an ice cube. So, uh, but but you want to dial it down some when you do that. Kind of like Elijah Craig, this particular whiskey opens up into like this just super beautiful floral kind of really super sweet so if you're into like a the sweeter whiskey a little water with this one changes everything and it's it's absolutely phenomenal
0: water you say as she water, water cup, and yeah. <laughs> I'm going to add some water to this because holy moly all right here we go let's pray all right just just a splash just a splash and let's make sure I actually close my water cup because we don't want that kind of a fail on the on the show okay <laughs> So should I let it sit for a minute, O wise one? Yes, please. Okay, I'll let it sit.
1: (laughs) Swoosh, swoosh, and settle. So,
0: swooshing. Okay.
1: Give it just a second. So while while we're waiting for your uh, your whiskey to settle there, let's uh, let's talk about camp followers. So these ladies, uh, they couldn't afford to stay at home on their own, or uh, their residences were destroyed. And you know, when the battlefields are backyards and front yards, you know that kind of collateral damage you know, is, is to be expected. Um, something that we don't think of because we haven't had to deal with it since then. So, you know, maybe a little bit in the war of 1812, but, but really we haven't had those types of, of things happen, um, to where we can kind of put that into perspective personally. Here are these, these ladies, these families that can't support themselves or don't have any place to go. So they just pack everything up and they hop on the train with, you know, it wasn't an actual train, but they hop on with the Continental Army, and now they become camp followers, and they pick up various roles, uh, laundry, food, um, services, like all kinds of um, a bunch of different tasks. And it, interesting enough, Washington doesn't like them, hmm. but his wife is one of them.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well didn't it wasn't it he felt like they were uh bad influences on on the men was that what it was because they they were distractions
1: he called them they are a clog upon every movement yeah right the the multitude of women are a clog on every movement right however he understands that they're vital to the success yeah um because they're picking up the other tasks uh feeding Laundering and and doing the other tasks that you know the dudes aren't gonna do themselves um because gender roles at the time if they had to I guess but uh but yeah uh he he was not a fan of them um now obviously his wife joining was a little bit different you know staying with the general you know wasn't slumming it down in the tents with the boys you know she probably had a pretty a pretty nice place to stay whenever she came around but I found that really interesting that he had such a problem with them even though his wife was one of them. So Smithsonian says this, uh, quote, Countless more women whose names we will never know served at the battlefield as nurses, cooks, laundresses, and camp followers. The last group describes women who accompanied the troops and provided domestic and sometimes sexual services, in some cases because they were simply too poor to provide for their families with their husbands away fighting. Historian Holly Mayer estimates that perhaps 7,000 women accompanied the American troops during the war. George Washington complained in 1777 that, quote, the multitude of women in particular are a clog upon every movement close quote but he knew that the soldiers would de- uh would desert without them and that their labor was necessary some of these women later adapted uh, excuse me applied for pensions and more research is needed in the voluminous pension files of the national archives to flesh out these stories close quote and that's from uh, Smithsonian. so um so they got recognized they did uh some of them were able to draw pensions afterwards and what fascinated me about this and this really doesn't i mean the All of these women could be Molly Pitcher. Yeah, any of these women could be Molly Pitcher, and you're talking seven thousand, and we've talked about two. You know, so how many more stories are out there? How many more instances of of heroism and bravery and great things um, that were done by women? And that's these are these are just the ladies who are are hopping on and providing these types of services. There are countless stories of ladies picking up arms before they were allowed to. Um, that's going to be another show on its own. You know, we'll, we'll talk about that at a later time. Uh, I don't want to really get into that just yet.
0: Well, and not speaking, not even touching on the women who joined as men and served as men. Exactly. Right? One name that came up during my search for the Molly picture um, was Deborah Sampson, who entered into the revolution uh, under an assumed name. She pretended to be a man, Robert Shirtliff, I think his name was, and was fine was able to serve right valiantly and heroically and was only found out after being injured on the battlefield um and so i think that's also important to keep in mind too is that while we know about these roughly seven thousand women there are also probably scores of other women who dressed as men and served whom we might not ever know because they went by an assumed name to Mm -hmm. not betray their gender right and that's that's a fascinating part of the history that i wish we could figure out a way to kind of get around you know like i i want to know how many robert shirtlifts there are that really served and and were never found out but that might be a a mystery to history
1: more than likely because if they're hiding stuff they're probably not talking about it they're probably not writing about it and unless it's discovered by somebody else through whatever circumstance uh it that that story is not going to come out and um even I, i mean even through I would say even through World War II, there's probably instances of that, and the folks that again didn't get found out probably are not never going to say anything. You know, maybe maybe now. I mean, right? Of course, that the, the World War One, World War Two thing. That's the, all those folks are, are. There's not many of them left. So I think I think actually we just lost. Was it last year? Year before last? We lost the last World War One vet. I think that was still living. It was like 106, or 107. It's amazing. But since then there have been movements to that have allowed women to serve in official roles. 1948, the United States military opens up uh, a bunch of roles to women. Finally, um, outside of unofficial roles of like nursing and, uh, logistics and that kind of thing. So now they're actually allowed to do stuff in the army. 1976. We see the first, uh, ladies joining the United States military Academy at West point graduates of the 1980 class, the year I was born. are folks, you know, now, Um, Now we have officers in multiple different things. In 20, oh boy, I think it was 2018, uh, I was in the room and got to see the very first females commission as infantry officers. Oh, wow. Which was cool. That was absolutely amazing. And now here we are. um, We've had uh, three, I think, successful graduations of the Special Forces Qualification Course. Um, by women, uh, we have had our very first ever, and we'll do a little brag here, a very first ever, uh, female honor graduate from ranger school. Now ranger school is the hardest school in the army. I don't care who you are. Um, special forces qualification is a long process and it sucks, but ranger school is the hardest school in the army. Uh, and the very first woman ever to be uh, named as honor grad, And I don't want to get her name wrong, so I'm going to read it. Uh, And the reason I have to read her name now is because when she worked for me, her name was Rachel Kinnison. But uh, she has since then been married, and her current name is Rachel Kicklighter. So she married Sam after they graduated, and she just graduated as the very first honor grad of the United States Army Ranger School. She is a engineer officer, and uh, and went through uh, Ranger School and did wonderfully. She did everything. She did. She did amazing. She was uh, one of the best skydivers we had on the team. She could fly a canopy like you would not believe. She's phenomenal. That that whole that whole class was phenomenal. But uh, but yeah, she was she was one of my uh, she was one of my cadets at West Point. So I was, was super cool. But we we've come a long way. Uh, and what the cool thing. Is, you know, you and I, but obviously not you and I, two people who are having a conversation about women serving in the 2000s, you know, a hundred years from now are going to be talking about these amazing people. And there's actually going to be records because now they don't have to hide their genders. Now they don't have to get just subjugated to, you know, household chore roles of support and this, that, and the other. Um, And I don't want to take away from those women that did serve in those roles as camp followers um, at all, because... Like, as we have discussed, um, they often found themselves right next to the dudes, except they didn't have guns to defend themselves. Right. They were rendering care and uh, making sure that everybody was staying hydrated and well. And that's. Well,
0: and I, th- I think even just like their presence on the field and and, and kind of forcing that experience really, <clears throat> excuse me, really <laughs> helped push The idea. I mean, it took a really, really, really long time. If you look at 1776 to 1946, 1950, right? Like that's a really long time for women to be allowed, quote unquote, into service of their country. But um, I think all of these stories and the reason why these stories are so important is because In their own small ways, they helped push that needle a little bit further to allow for further inclusion to where now we have stories like your former cadet who is a badass and is (laughs) going to be recognized as such during her lifetime immediately.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. All right. So um, given everything we've talked about, um, one of the things I want to do the series is say – is is this just a big story or and we we've kind of already touched on it but we'll as as we close this out we'll uh we'll kind of get into like the you know uh are we gonna stamp this with a big red fact are we gonna stamp this with a big red fiction stamp you know what i mean uh so in your opinion with everything you've been able to see what do you think where are we going which stamp
0: I feel like there's enough sufficient uh, primary source material and anecdotal evidence and contemporary reports that, um, you know, maybe some of it probably got embellished. But, you know, I think there's enough records out there to indicate that there were several thousand women who participated and probably more than two of them were finding themselves behind a cannon. So I'm gonna go ahead and say fact.
1: All right. So one vote for fact. Uh, I am also going to grab <clears throat> the fact stamp and put a giant red fact stamp on this one as well. I think there's there's more than enough to say that it was more than just probable, it was likely. And likely for me is, is a go. So I'm going to say yes, this is not just a legend. This is a true story. This did happen. These are real people. These stories now may have been mixed together or parts of this story became parts of that story and vice versa, but the stories themselves are real. And this is not just the legend of, this is the story of Molly Pitcher, a.k.a. insert any number of women's names during the Revolutionary War. So, all right. Well, uh, I think that's going to do it for us here this evening. My friend, it's so good to see you.
0: Good to see you, too. I'm happy to be back.
1: Oh, me too me too. Although um, next
0: time I come on, I want to see the wall of whiskey again. I know, I know you're in between walls of whiskey at the moment, but the next time now notice how I'm already inviting myself on for a third time. I want to see the wall of whiskey again.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. You got it. You got it. And, uh, and we'll talk about that third time here once we're done. Um, and we'll get that set up for, uh, for moving on in the, in the future here. Um, but, uh, but for those of us here at the bar of questionable life choices, folks, uh, thank you for joining us tonight. Stay tuned Saturdays, right? Every, every Saturday, uh, you can find, uh, Alicia in her amazing show, uh, every Saturday, civics and coffee. It is. So if you took this show, right. The same amount of information and you packed it into 16 minutes, right. (laughs) Um, I don't know how she does it and she won't share with me the formula. Um, (laughs) but she does it. She probably doesn't say, um, as much as I do, but, uh, (laughs) if, if you only have a few minutes and you have a love for history, that is the show that you need to get connected to. And you need to plug into because, um, just amazing stuff in a very small amount of time, which, uh, I have loved hearing your voice over the last few months as I've been, uh, working through my own stuff. Um, it's been, it's been wonderful. Uh, to, to kind of reach back and, and have you kind of be a motivating factor for me. So thank you for doing what you do. It has meant the world to me personally. Thank Um, you so
0: much. I really appreciate that. And thanks for having me on again. I always love chatting with you. So this has been lots and lots of fun.
1: Always, always, always. And we will have you back soon uh, next time in front of the wall of whiskey. (laughs) I'll I'll actually, I'll have you back uh, before then. Uh, we'll do a quick video chat and and I'll have you actually pick the bottles that you want me to send.
0: Oh, okay. (laughs) So it's
1: your fault when you start taking clothes off, not mine. (laughs) Deal. All right. Excellent folks. Thanks for joining us tonight. We'll talk to you later. Cheers.
0: I finished it.
1: (laughs) I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And as always, if you have any comments, questions, or would like to join me at the Bar of Questionable Life Choices for an episode, hit me up on email at whywhiskeyhistory at gmail.com. Cheers.